not to start off with, with a boast of myself this morning, but uh, I've accomplished something in my life twice that most people have actually never accomplished once. That is, I failed the driver's exam at the DMV. Not just once, but I actually failed it twice. And um, I was thinking about that as I was going through this passage because there's something, the, the real reason I failed, okay, the formal reason I failed my driver's exam was, what is it, dangerous vehicle maneuver? It sounds worse than it actually is. It's, you know, I didn't turn the blinker on properly at one point. But the real reason, if I could put that on paper, I failed was because, man, I was nervous. And, you know, when you're nervous, you, you second guess things and you, um, you're in the car, you know, alone with this examiner and they have long, you know, silences and you're thinking, am I doing the right thing? Am, what am I supposed to, to do? And when they tell you to, they give you directions to do something, you're thinking in your head, what are they really asking? What are they really asking of me? What should I actually do? What am I really supposed to be doing in this car? And as you're second guessing, you start to lose focus, you start to lose, not control of the car, hopefully, but you lose focus on all the safe driving procedures that you've learned over the previous year or so. But the third time I took the behind the wheel exam, the third time I got behind the wheel with the new instructor, um, the, the examiner, she said something to me that really stuck with me after all these years. And she basically told me, I'm going to sit here with you in the car and I'm going to ask you to perform certain actions and I'm not here to dissemble, to trick, or to mislead you in any way. Whatever I ask, that's simply what I'm asking you to do. And that actually comforted me, and I ended up passing, by the way, I have my driver's license. <laughs> I ended up passing because that totally comforted me, and it brought clarity by the power of just a plain spoken directive as I was driving. And it was kind of a full disclosure of, I'm not trying to mislead you, I'm not trying to trick you, this is the plain facts of this examination. And it brought this comfort into a tough situation, an exam that I was going through at the moment. And as we studied these last few chapters of Isaiah, I hope uh, you guys have caught on to the fact that God in these last, in the 40s, we should say, the chapter 41 through um, 45, as we're looking at right now, I hope you've noticed that God is speaking very plainly about himself. Just uh, a quick survey. Um, you don't have to turn anywhere right now, but um, in 40, chapter 41, God says, I am the Lord, the first and the last. I am he. Also in chapter 41, God says, I am with you. I will strengthen you. I will help you. Chapter 42, verse 8, says, the Lord says, I am the Lord. That is my name. And we see all these ways in which God is just plainly identifying himself and fully disclosing himself to his people in these few chapters in Isaiah. And most notably for our purposes, um, Isaiah chapter 43, which is a passage we've already studied, um, verse 11 says, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. And so today, as we study and as we meditate on this chapter, we're going to observe the scope of what God means when he says he is the Savior. And in discussing God as Savior, we're going to encounter exactly who it is that God intends to save, to give salvation to. God takes the act, the, the um, deed of salvation, the work of salvation, very seriously. And it's not just something that 
is something that we have, we have salvation as Christians. It's not something like an insurance policy, though. It's something that's given to us and a state into which God invites us. And so when God is saying that he has the whole power um, of salvation, he's also articulating in this chapter for our purposes today that there is also an invitation extended to salvation, and we're going to understand that today. And so God makes clear that his plan of redemption for his people also includes a plan of invitation for all to come to him and to be saved. And so before we're we're done, we're going to see that God is declaring this salvation in this passage in several ways. Um, Number one, we're going to go through these one at a time, so you don't have to immediately take notes if you are. But number one, God speaks openly. Number two, God speaks prophetically. And number three, God speaks righteously concerning his salvation. And so why don't we go ahead and jump into this uh, uh, chapter. We're actually going to pick up where uh, Pastor Robert left off in verse 14 of Isaiah chapter 45. We see, Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is with you, and there is no other, no God besides him. And so, remember last week, we had discussed a man named Cyrus, who was a Persian king. And God had singled out Cyrus, saying, He is my anointed one. He wasn't um, part of Israel. He wasn't uh, ethnically related to Israel. But God's saying, I'm anointing Cyrus, and his role is to bring back God's people to their own land. And so not only will Israel return as a distinct ethnic people right here, but we also see in this, in this verse that other nations will come to Israel and say, we see that you guys have deliverance. We see that God is delivering you. And it's almost like a spiritual immigration where they're saying, we want to come with you. We want to be with you. They assume an identity if you will, kind of with Israel. They want to be, be Israel's, but they're not as equals. They're saying, we'll come with you. We'll even be your slaves. We're going to indenture your, ourselves to you. We see Egypt right here and, and Cush. They're, they're giving their, their money and their things and themselves even to Israel saying, we're going to come with you because we understand that God is in the business of saving you because they recognize the power of their God. And so that was what occasioned this reaction. They recognized God as the only God against their false representation of God, which is their their worship of idols. In other words, Israel kind of has a covenant with God that other nations would just die to have. They would pay for it. They have the one true God in their midst. Look at their conclusion in the end of verse 14. They say, surely God is with you and there is no other. This act of deliverance, of returning Israel from exile and God using you know, a, a pagan king to accomplish this thing was significant. It was explosive. It was momentous. And it was kind of similar to the exodus that Moses performed and God instructed Moses to perform in bringing Israel out of Egypt um, several hundred years back. And this was, the exodus was another event that showed the power of God. And 
But when God delivered Israel from Egypt, it was actually not encouraging to other nations. It was actually demoralizing. Observe uh, Exodus chapter 15, verses 4, 3, and 2, 15. It kind of records how people reacted when God was delivering Israel out of Egypt, and He did it in a in a mighty hand and kind of destroyed the Egyptian army and that. And the other nations reacted this way. He says the the peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have ceased the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab, and all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. But notice in this verse. God's acts on behalf of Israel have created reconciliation right here, where the nations are coming to him. It's not creating the sense of hostility or hopelessness in the nations. So as Israel returns, God says they're actually going to bring many guests who wish they were with them as these nations are recognizing the greatness of God's power to deliver. And really, I mean, if we think about this in our present day, you know, the, that's what people should see in the world in our midst, in the church's midst, is God's power working through us and in us. But let's go ahead and read on in verse 15. We see an interesting remark that we start off with in verse 15. Truly, you are a God who hides himself. O God of Israel, the Savior. Verse 16, all of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together, but Israel is saved by the Lord. With everlasting salvation, you shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. Here we start with a piece of commentary. We see that God has spoken about how the nations will react to the deliverance and the salvation of Israel in verse 14. And now in verse 15, we have this piece of commentary, and it's presumably Isaiah kind of commenting on how this looks to the outside world, if you will. This phrase intends to kind of contrast God with false idols. And he starts out by saying, surely you are a God, or truly you are a God who hides himself. So what do we take that exactly to mean? Is, that God is, is he accusing God of hiding from his own people, of maybe shoo, uh, uh, hiding when they come into the room, or trying to um, c- conceal himself so they don't know who he is? Well, it's actually seems to be a comment about the strangeness or kind of mystery surrounding God's um, act of deliverance here, that God would use a foreign king named Cyrus to accomplish his plan of salvation. So it's, he's kind of saying that it's, God's kind of doing this act, but he's not doing it in the way we might expect. He's doing it in this roundabout way, in a way that's kind of mysterious, but compound that with the fact that in this contrast that this uh, little comment is making between God and idols, we understand there is a, a huge contrast in the fact that God's invisible and idols are uh, visible. We, we can see idols. We can see what color they are. And that's probably the more appealing thing of why people can worship idols, worship things they see, worship cars, worship sport te- sports teams, worship celebrities, worship politicians, because they're visible. And that remains also for um, us today as just a, a kind of active struggle with people who are looking into religions or looking into Christianity. It's just an old argument to say, I don't see God. You know, is he actually there? I can't physically measure him. I can't wrap my arms around him. And therefore, May I ask, is he actually 
present? Is he there? Does he exist? And that's something we really have to wrestle and think about because the, the, the truth is God is invisible. We cannot see God, and to some extent, he is a mystery to us. We don't know the deepest thoughts of God. We don't know what he's doing at any given moment. Often, you know, he's working behind the scenes. You know, it's not, we don't get immediate confirmation that he's listening to us. And in some, to some extent, we have to acknowledge that God is hidden from us in some ways. We don't understand all of it. And even if we did see the plans of God, though, I don't think we would comprehend them. I don't think we would understand them. I remember working in, um, in a Christian bookstore for a while, and I remember this, this woman had come in, and she brought her husband, and she was just very explicit about her, her intentions of bringing her husband, and she's like, my husband needs to know the Lord, which is, you know, a good, good way to bring him. What kind of book can you give him to help him learn, know the Lord? And my first thought was, well, the Bible would be a good place to start. But the, the husband was talking to me, and he said, I want a book that can help me understand the mind of God. And I was thinking, man, that's like a tall order. Like, what, who? That's, that's pretty significant. But we, I have to had to acknowledge, you know, no one really understands the full um, um, mind of God, if you will. But I had to think about that, and I had to acknowledge that, well, we don't understand the full mind of God, but we can understand how and in which way he's revealed himself to us. So no one has the definitive expose or tell-all or definitive biography of God. And all we have to go on, and what this man would need to be kind of ushered into, is that the things that he tells us about himself are our only anchor of knowing God. And so how do we know God in this instance, in this particular verse, God is known by his actions right here. In verse 17, Israel is saved by the Lord. So this is the way God is revealing himself to Israel. God is known by his actions right here. And in the same way, you can measure idols by their actions and compare them. And just to give you just a cheat sheet, idols actually can't perform actions. And that's the point of what Isaiah is saying. The idols are carried by their worshipers, whereas God is carrying his worshipers and delivering them. And so just given the fact that these people are being delivered and these people are not, will attest to the fact that God is real, God is the only Savior, and idols cannot accomplish anything. And that's how Isaiah compares them right here. But also understand, the second half of verse 17 points out that God reveals himself by the exclusivity of his salvation. The contrast is huge and actually eternal at the end of verse 17. Um, or I should say most of verse 17. Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation, and you shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. There's a difference between you know, eternal salvation and eternal deliverance or just being confounded and put away. And so the, from the finality of this, we understand that when God is delivering his, his people, he's trying to usher us into seeing a greater picture of a greater deliverance and a larger point that he wants to make to us. And so the return of Israel from exile and their subsequent homecoming, if you will, to their own land is just a portrait for God and for our lesson to show us a greater salvation that will endure forever. So let's keep reading. In verse 18, 
We see this, for thus says the Lord, he who created the heavens, he is God. Who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in the land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. The Lord speaks the truth, or I the Lord speak the truth. I declare what is right. And so, when God is looking at this work and now offering his own commentary on his act of salvation, he's kind of doing a, something like offering a play-by-play analysis of something that's kind of already happened, and he's observing it in this way. And where does God start when he discusses this plan of salvation? He actually unfolds, um, he begins to say that it unfolds not with the people of Israel, not with this immediate action, but he says it begins with creation. God begins by saying in verse 18 that he created the world. God begins with that fact. And he creates the world, if you remember, with his words. And he makes the point right here that God did not create our world empty. God could have made another uh, Mercury or Mars or Pluto. And Pluto, I think Pluto's a planet, I think. But God decided to make an Earth, to make a planet with biology, with people living on it. God did not have to infuse earth with life, but he did. And so there are a few things we can actually learn from this when God is discussing himself at creation. We observe by by implication God's real desire for people to inhabit the earth. I mean, the, the reason everything exists, the reason that you and I exist and are existing in time and space, in this place, is really at the good pleasure of God. It's because he wills it. It's because when he created the world, he wanted people there. Isn't that delightful? Especially to, to it might be even a check to us who are like, oh, people, like I can't really stand people and overcrowding and stuff like that. God's saying, I love people on earth. I love to have people on earth. And so just understand that, yeah, people's lives have value because God has imbued this value on them. So remember that earth was created for your habitation. That's, that's good news. But the also should teach us that the scope of God's salvation was not Israel's, uh, nation of Israel specific. It's actually, he's talking about the whole world. So when he talks about this action, he doesn't say, well, this is, you know, the covenant I made with Israel. But he's saying, no, this is something that I had planned from the beginning of creation. And so when God created the world, he had a purpose in it. That is, the purpose is to be inhabited. That's, that's clear. He had the, that's the intended goal for which God created the world. And in the same way, God will say right here in verse 19 that he is speaking openly, and that is um, our first point today, that God speaks openly. In the same way that when God created the world and intended it to be inhabited with people, God speaks openly his promises and intended intends that his promises to be fulfilled and to be heard. And that's a reasonable request. When God speaks, he wants to be heard and to be responded to. When God wants people to seek him, he intends for people to seek him. He intends to be sought. 
He says right here, I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. He's basically saying, I did not say this thing and meet another thing. I am open, I revealed myself by my words, and I'm available to you. And so the God responsible for the whole order and scheme of creation intends, right here, for us to seek him. So God is speaking openly here. One, while certain aspects of God are hidden from us, we don't know the full mind of God. We don't know the full glory of God. And I think if he showed us, we would all drop dead in an instant. But God has revealed himself openly through his word right here. He speaks openly, truly, plainly, and up front. And just like the DMV examiner that really counseled me right in that car, God speaks his mind, and he speaks very clearly, and he reveals himself in this way. He doesn't speak in a corner. He doesn't speak right here in a land of darkness. But he speaks out in the open where people can test him. And God was accustomed to making open and public decrees um, in front of um, his people through Moses, if you will. Remember Deuteronomy 29:29. Um, Moses is speaking, and he says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all, that we may do all the words of this law. And the context of that statement, Moses is telling Israel in a huge assembly these things. And he says, This is the law, and while we don't, we will never understand the secret things of God, he, we can understand. And we will understand his law that he has given to us, the way in which he's disclosed himself. And so God's people can hang and rest their hat on the promises he makes in his revealed words. In fact, we might say that just as God has filled the world with his um, life, God fulfills his promises with their um, eventual fulfillment. So let's continue on right here in verse 20. Assemble yourselves and come. God says, draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. And so we understand right here how God is articulating his plan of salvation, and it's that God is speaking prophetically right here. We know that Israel was being judged for their idolatry, their disobedience toward God. That's how they found themselves in exile. They were being judged by God. But, appear, but it appears here that God is interviewing, if you will, or, or cross-examining other nations that were affected by the world powers and by the people that were oppressing them. And he's challenging to them to find any sort of oracle or any sort of word from their gods that could have predicted this outcome or that explained, had any sort of explanatory power of, for their circumstances. It's kind of, now what did you learn that's the lesson God is um, giving to these, these other nations. And they have to admit that they're kind of left completely in the dark. They're praying to a God that cannot save. And they kind of wander around in ignorance and they have no knowledge. They wander in the dark. And that's what's supposed to make the people of God 
distinct. And so God's drawing this contrast of saying, these nations, they really don't know what's going on. They live in ignorance because they don't have the true words of God. They don't have the, the words that God is disclosing to them of himself and of his law and of his purposes. And not, not only that, but of the future. So God reminds his people of their privileged position that, yeah, I have these people that I'm giving the words of prophecy to, and they're not, they're not supposed to be considered empty, or they're not supposed to be considered just throwaway words. They're not empty threats. But rather, God is saying, these words I'm giving to you are pathways to salvation. God is saying, there is no other God besides me, He's saying, I'm a righteous God and a Savior, and there is none besides me. And so they're not just simply, you know, warnings, don't do this or do this, but God is saying, this is how I'm showing you how to find salvation. This is my invitation to you to find salvation. And so we understand that right here, God is speaking to his people, saying, remember when I told you about this before? I told you this before it happens. I spoke to you in time. I spoke to you in, in space, if you will. And so the, the articulation that God gives here is all because he understands that his people cannot survive, they cannot live long in hopelessness or ignorance. The people of God must have the knowledge of God imparted to them um, in order to trust God. And they, thereby, they have the means through his word to find out how to worship him and how to find salvation. And they disregard his words only to their own danger, only to their own peril. In um, uh, Hosea verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 6, um, it says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. Uh, most uh, tr Bible translations will say, My people are destroyed for lack of vision. And that's kind of like the, the idea behind the um, vision meeting that we're going to have after the church. This that God has revealed himself through scripture on what a church should be and what a church should do in this world, and we want to be obedient. So we want to therefore um, articulate that for the next year of the church. And so when God gives um, a, a vision like this, we should understand it simply means that God gives people knowledge. It's not uh, um, some kind of when we think of vision, we think of visionary or CEO of a, a Steve Jobs or a dreamer that, you know, they have these dreams they want to bring into the world. You know, I don't think any of the, the leadership here is, is, has that any kind of uh, capacity or power. They, and they're not trying to impose their own vision on this, but rather they're trying to impose the knowledge of God as revealed in Scripture. And so we should learn from this that when God gives us knowledge, it's for our warnings and it's for our survival that we might be saved, that we might cling to him and trust him in times of danger and in times of need. So let's keep on reading in verse 22. And we'll see that not only that God speaks openly and God speaks prophetically, we see that God, when he speaks, speaks righteously. Verse 22 says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To, every knee, um, to me every knee shall bow, 
every tongue shall swear allegiance. So this is the most plain spoken invitation for people to turn to God and be saved. He, God says, turn to me and be saved. I mean, it's just, it's articulated very plainly for us. But God is grounding this statement in some facts. He's substantiating this statement with some claims about himself, and it's about his righteousness. So we should understand, even from verse 14 and the other nations, recognizing that God's deliverance is really significant, that they want to join the, the ranks of Israel in order to experience this. We should understand from that fact that God really is trying to and has an, a bigger idea in mind when he's talking about salvation. And God swears by himself as the perfect arbiter of righteousness for all. Righteousness basically just means God's moral perfection. God will be the one who swears by his own integrity. He can swear by no other greater power than himself. And he is the one who's going to make things right. Hence, righteousness. He's going to make things right. And so, when we think of righteousness, or we think of the word righteous, we should understand that it's not, you know, we often think of it, it connotes kind of poorly in our heads because we think of self-righteousness, or we think of righteous as a surfer word for cool or something like that. But God's idea of righteousness is simply moral perfection. We should not think of, you know, the stuffy attitude that people have that we know that give off, you know, the fact that they think they know better than everyone else. God says, I really do know better than everyone else because I am moral perfection. God's righteousness means that everything he does is right and good. And if you are not yet convinced about God's righteousness, I, uh, theologian uh, Joel Beakey says this about God's righteousness. He says, the absolute sovereign God Encourage us to trust, encourages us to trust him by revealing that he is not arbitrary or morally indifferent, but exercise his, exercises his authority and power with perfect judgment. And in fact, God does not save or uh, deliver his people through salvation or in salvation outside of his righteousness. Righteousness is what compels him to save and to justify. In Psalm 65, verse 5, we read this. The psalmist says, By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness. O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. So God is absolutely righteous. And I think that's comforting for us who live in a world of fallen heroes and moral failings and just uh, people and politicians just dissembling and the commonplace act of lying and hypocrisy, and we think, who can we look up to? God is saying, I am the true and perfect moral arbiter. It's a great comfort to us that this is the person in charge of making things right. I think I can trust God in that instance. And so because he swears in righteousness, right here he's saying, I'm going to make a statement that will not return to me. In other words, it's a statement I will never retract he says at the end of verse 23, to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. So God is saying, I am sovereign and I'm righteous over all things, not just the nation of Israel, but the entire world. His lordship is not only over Israel, but he is lord of the whole of creation. The, so we see the exclusivity, if you will, about the character of God that he is the only one who can save. It's just an objective truth. And so we have to ask ourselves, what exactly is happening here? What, how 
does God intend to fulfill this kind of thing? Well, it's fulfilled, I mean, plainly in the coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul pretty much explicitly articulates this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Paul says this, he says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So God, with the exaltation, with the incarnation of Christ, he's making this prophecy right here a complete reality so that it's not merely a doctrinal creed that people will say, you know, I'm going to pledge allegiance to God as though it's the same way we might recite rotely the the pledge of allegiance to the flag or something like that. But God, by revealing Christ as the sole agent of our salvation, God is revealing in the flesh a person, not just a creed or a doctrine that we can acknowledge as our Savior. There's a quote in your bulletin from Richard Sibbs, and um, just because I couldn't stop there, I'm going to quote him some more, because he's talking about the salvation given to us in Christ and the fact that Christ is our salvation. Here are a couple good gems from the Puritan Richard Sibbs. He says, Christ himself is nothing but salvation clothed in our flesh. Not just a person, or not just an idea, but, but a person. And so he also says, when we embraced Christ in the arms of faith, we embrace nothing but salvation. And so we should not simply acknowledge that God is a way to salvation. We must embrace and trust God himself. That's what it means to turn to him and be saved. God is saying, turn to me. I am providing the way. It's not a 10-step program that you have to um, hit every step on. It's, he's saying, just turn to me. I will save you. I'm the one who actively saved you. It's not a mere transaction where he's offering us salvation. He's trying to pitch us this idea. God is saying, I'm the one who can save you from judgment and from sin. In verse 24, we'll finish up the chapter. We read, only in the Lord it shall be said of me are righteousness and strength and to him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. So moreover, over against this confession that God is really the only Savior, people will confess also and worship him for his righteousness and for his strength. And this is in contrast to false gods. And it's also, if you will, kind of, if you can kind of see what's going on. It's also in uh, spite of the animosity that some nations might feel for him. Even those who are incensed against God, even those who hate God, who are hostile against God, will understand God's redemption, will understand that this is really the God they should have been um, trusting in and not, not fighting against. They'll, they'll understand that. And this is something that we as sinners, will probably always naturally feel the pull of, and that is to be hostile against God. And so we defeat that hostility against God by simply trusting in Christ. And for those who remain hostile and those who continually resist God, there's a designated end. Notice that their end will be 
ashamed. Those who are incensed against God are the ones who will eventually have to say, I was wrong in the end, and God was right. It's inevitable, and so those who are hostile against God, they just have shame in their future. And that's why the psalmist says in Psalm um, 2, chapter 2, um, he says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And in verse 4, he talks about God, and he says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. If you're hostile against God because of an act of, you know, this is what, uh, uh, I can be my own person, or this is an act of my own strength, in the end, you're simply going to acknowledge your own shame. And God has a judgment for those who rage against him. But on the other side, those who trust him are justified. And remember that God's justification of people, God's vindication, his forgiveness of people, his reconciliation of them to himself, that's all a product of his righteousness because he is right and he does right things. And so when all the offspring are justified, the implication is that the one, that God is the one doing the justification. That's kind of a passive verb, and basically we should just see that God is the one performing this. But if we look a little bit closer on exactly who will be justified, God is saying, in the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified. And we notice there's kind of a, a time difference. There's like a, a difference where he says, not just the people in this present time are being, will be saved from exile. That's, that's the current act of salvation that God is performing, but he's saying there's a greater salvation for the offspring of Israel, for the future of Israel. He's referring to the future Israel, quote-unquote Israel, who will realize his full plan of redemption, of which this return from exile, arbitrated by King Cyrus, of which that's only a picture. God's true salvation will bring outsiders into his family in so much that Israel will no longer mean simply ethnic Israel, but all of everyone who has confessed Jesus as Lord. This is clear when Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27 through 28, Paul describes um, the hidden mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make, how, make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory, of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So that's the true offspring of Israel, those who trust in Christ and those who have trust and have faith in the promises of God. And so God calls us today to trust in Christ in the same way he called Israel back then, with teachings and with warnings, by looking and examining the word of God and calling us today in 2020, come to me and be saved. And we should take his invitation seriously. So two things to apply to our own lives as we start to close, and two questions we should ask ourselves. Number one, we should ask ourselves, is our life a picture of God's salvation? And when I ask that, to some extent, I'm really just asking, are you saved? Has God saved you from your sin? 
And if you are saved, your life is simply an objective display of God's mercies and His God's grace, and His righteousness is seen in your very life. But if God has really saved you and done a work in your life, do other people around you see this and know this? Do your neighbors and coworkers and relatives see this salvation so that they would react in the way those nations did and say, God, we know that you're real because you delivered Jared, because you delivered this person. And so we should ask ourselves, is our life a picture of God's salvation? And secondly, for us today, and this is an important one, do we listen when God speaks? To us today, God promises eternal security if we believe and confess Christ. He promises forgiveness of everything we've done wrong, the ways in which we've broken our relationship with the only life giver that the world and the universe has ever known. God tells us, here's the way to be reconciled with me through Christ by trusting in him and seeking forgiveness from your sins in that way. And the calls in this chapter are pretty applicable to us. In verse 19, God says, seek me. In verse 22, God says, turn to me. So are you seeking God? Are you turning to God in your trouble, in your trials? Are you turning to God with your sins? Turn to God only for your salvation.